Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1934 film, It Happened One Night. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how are you doing? Doing great, Sam. Thanks. Uh, Barrett, uh, I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Um, and, and my goal is to not constantly compare it to bringing up baby. Um, but, but I feel like there is, there is sort of a conversation to be had there. So we'll probably have it. So, but I want to start with the most pressing question, which is, do you dunk your donuts in coffee? (laughs) Well, to be frank, I, I rarely eat a donut. Um, but when I do eat a donut, yes, I would dunk it in my coffee. And, and you know uh, how to do that appropriately? And I do it appropriately. I definitely, definitely follow Peter Warney's advice on that. I think, I think that Ellie is, is, does not know how to dunk a donut. That's a clear class marker. <laughs> All right. I asked that question just to show my hand, which is I loved this movie. <laughs> um, so I will start with my history with this movie um, because uh, this, like many other things we've talked about, I watched in the late 90s after the initial AFI list came out. This was, I think, like number 34 on that list. I think it was 45 or something on the, the 2007 list. And I watched this in late college, you know, one summer. And uh, I didn't get it. It just didn't land with me. I mean, I, again, I'm probably 21, 22 years old. And just like, I did not see what the fuss was about. I did not understand why this movie would be ranked highly. I watched it this week and adored it. I loved this movie. Um, so, so I'm excited to talk about it. What is your history with this film? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I saw this film in grad school. We, uh, Cornell had a film a society and they would do different uh, series every year. And so they did a, a series of screwball comedies. I remember seeing His Girl Friday in that same series. So I would have seen it back then. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, Sam. Like you, I was kind of underwhelmed by it. I mean, I thought it was an okay film, but I also didn't see what the fuss was. And I also have never been a big Clark Gable fan, although, to be fair, I haven't watched a lot of Gable films. So I kind of went into this with um, sort of diminished expectations and, like you, found it entirely charming and, and, and in some ways different from other screwballs. And that's maybe something we'll talk about. Yeah, I'm actually glad you said that because I had the same uh, thought of like, Clark Gable is somebody that, you know, people hold up as sort of this, you know, massive figure in old Hollywood. And and I will say I didn't, he's also somebody like, I don't get it. He's not somebody who excites me particularly, but I really liked him in this movie. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Now, another thing that jumped out at me that I didn't realize um, going into this is that this is a Frank Capra movie. Mm-hmm. Cause when I think of Frank Capra, I have a very, I have kind of the definition of Capra esque in my head. So I think of like, um, it's a wonderful life. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Lost causes are the only ones worth fighting for. Like, like these are the ideas that I think of like this particular view of America. Um, and what it was interesting to watch this and think like, Hmm. What about this is a Frank Capra film? What relates this to uh, the other the other Capra movies that you know that that I've seen and that I, I really enjoy those other movies a lot? But this feels different. So I was curious. Like, are there is there Capra DNA that sort of runs across those things? Yeah, I think there is. And 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 before I, I say more about that, I want to back up just a minute about this whole notion of um, uh, Clark Gable, the King of Hollywood top box office star in the 30s. Capra said about um, about 
Gable's performance in this film, Capra said that this was Gable being most like Gable. Um, he felt that the character that Gable was playing uh, was actually very much channeling Gable's own personality. He was not really the kind of Christian Fletcher mutiny on the bounty character or, um, you know, gone with the wind character that he was really more kind of a down to earth guy like this. So there's, I think there's a moment in this film and this is not my own insight. I picked it up from, from one of the reviews. I think there's a moment in this film, which is especially Capra-esque, and that is the singing of the, of the daring young man on the flying trapeze, um, because it is such a democratic event. Everybody takes a turn singing a verse, or, or people take a turn singing the, singing the lead uh, verse, and then everybody joins in on the chorus, and the bus becomes a kind of, microcosm of America. And to me, that is, that's the Capra vision. The Capra vision is the common person matters. Uh, and, you know, this is a film in 1934. It's the heart of the, the depression. And it doesn't dwell on that, but you kind of see it in the background. Right? You've got the hobos riding by on the train. You've got both Ellie and Peter being kind of down on their luck, the hitchhiking scene, sleeping in the hay. I mean, there's this whole notion that America is is a democracy it's and but we're and we're all in it together but we're all going through some rough times that long tracking shot at ellie going to stand in line for the shower there's lots of little touches like that that tell you that this is a guy who's really trying to be in touch with the common person and this is this is our america it's not the rich people's america this is the, this is the people's america well it's interesting i i also um the 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 bus scene is one of the scenes that really pops too uh off i mean like this one of my takeaways is this was such an unbelievably fun movie there's very very funny performances in it um and thinking about it uh thinking about about that bus scene as a picture of america and thinking about this as a depression movie uh, i will say also that that long tracking shot jumped out at me i maybe i'm just a sucker for kind of uh side to side tracking shots because i feel like there's been a number of movies moon persona has an amazing one and this one like just like oh now we're doing some we're doing some interesting filmmaking here and i loved how long that was and how we got to see kind of ellie's introduction to the world and it's one of those great things uh anybody who's traveled a lot has had that experience where you're traveling at night and you get to a place, and especially if you get to a place during like a, a rainstorm, like mm -hmm. they do, where you have no sense of where you are, and you're just looking for a place to get out of the rain. And and then you wake up in the morning, and in the light of day, you realize, oh, this is the world that I'm in. And like that is such a perfect picture of Ellie, who's already from a different world. Mm -hmm. Now she's she, she's taking that long walk to the shower and. And we're seeing everyone see her and her see everyone. And then there is just that, that great sort of moment of privilege where she asks, oh, is this, the, is this where the showers are? And then she just walks up blind to the fact that she's walking past a line of people who are clearly waiting for the shower. And it's great because we're in on the joke way before Ellie. And we're like, oh, this is going to be great because she doesn't, she's never had to wait for something. And this is going to be funny. And I, I, that was such a, a wonderfully put together sequence. Um, and it actually made me think of how much more this movie reminds me of Sullivan's Travels than it does of uh, mm -hmm. bringing a baby. Um, so it's cause, because Sullivan's Travels is also, uh, it's also a traveling movie. I mean, literally it's in the title, right? So, so here we have people on the road. We have this depression era movie. We have this wealthy person 
for a different reason in this case, sort of being pushed into experiencing the world um, in that kind of way. So I definitely, um, I definitely thought about um, about Sullivan's travels as I watched this movie. No, I think that's a really good connection, Sam. What, what, one other point about that tracking shot, I think there's a subtle joke, another subtle joke there, because if I'm remembering right, I think Peter tells her that it's just out back. Right. So, so, I, so, I, so I remember as the tracking shot is going on longer and longer and longer, I was, I was thinking either she's missed it or his definition of just out back is very different from most people's definition of just out back. So I thought that was part of the reason why the whole shot is, is amusing because you're thinking, well, that's, that's, a, that's a bit of a trek. And I just, I just love kind of, I just love the way Capra took the time to develop that shot that that was the other thing about that is is that is that it slows the movie down but it also creates a kind of comic rhythm well and it also even that comment of it's just out back um speaks to the relationship between peter and ellie because you know that peter's ahead of the joke as well he's like this is going to be great i can almost imagine him running to the window to be like i want to watch this scene too <laughs> Because she has no, because she doesn't know where she is, and he's already encountered her, you know, on the bus. Just assuming, well, obviously the bus is going to wait for me, you know. And this is this is how they end up, you know, off the bus in that way. Uh, and uh, yeah, I really, <laughs> I, 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 I loved, I loved how that gave that little picture of that. And there's lots of scenes where, um, where we see the developing relationship and the shifting relationship between these two characters. Uh, and I mean relationship in lots and lots of ways. Um, one of the things that as I read about this movie, it is credited as not the first romantic comedy, but sort of the, the romantic comedy on which every other romantic comedy for the next 87 years, even if it doesn't know it has the DNA of this, of this movie in it. And it's in part because I feel like this does it so, so well. Um, and, and I think the, the, one of the big pieces of that is that in the relationship between Peter and Ellie, they're constantly switching back and forth in terms of who's in a position of, of sort of power and control and who's out of it. And it's, so it's not always like Peter introducing Ellie to this world, but sometimes Peter's trying to do that. I mean, this is the hitchhiking scene, right? He's like, let me show you how this is done. And he does this great bit about all the different ways. And I love the, and it's, this is in the, the Dunkin' Donut scene too, where he's like, uh, I'm going to write a book about it. It's like, I am an expert in the world. And of course you can be an expert in the world if you're talking to somebody who's even less of an expert than you. But we realize like, is Peter an expert in this world? <laughs> Has he really seen things? Because his whole, that, that hitchhiking thing is so great. And then the fact that it is such a failure and that she walks up and says, well, I know how to stop a car, <laughs> you know? And it's like, and that, but but that's a moment where we see that shift and and I feel like one of the things that Capra and the screenwriters and the actors do so well is monitor that balance. Whenever anybody seems like they're too much winning, it's like okay, let's let's knock that person down a little bit and raise the other one back up. Yeah, that's a really good point, Sam. I mean, what, what, one one thing I love about that scene is that you know originally Colbert didn't want to do it, um, and uh, she said it wasn't ladylike. And so they brought in a chorus girl to be a body double, and Colbert said, "Wait a minute, that's not my leg." So I'm so glad that she that she stuck stuck to her guns and or changed her mind. The other thing I want to say, you know, you talk about this is kind of a lot of people talk about this is kind of setting the tropes for a lot of rom coms, um, but also, and I think we talked a little bit about this with bringing up Baby. It actually goes all the way back to some Shakespearean comedies. 
So, and I think probably there's probably two that are at work here. I would say um, certainly the Beatrice Benedict relationship in Much Ado About Nothing, uh, that kind of verbal sparring. And then there's a little bit of Taming of the Shrew. Um, a little, not a lot, but a little bit of that. There's not a lot of it because, as you say, he doesn't always have the upper hand. But one of my favorite scenes is the argument over what a proper piggyback ride is. And and the moment when he says, here, hold this, and he, he hands her the suitcase so he can smack her on the bottom. I, I just happen to, I happen to love that scene. I just think, because that was my first thought. He's carrying her across the, the, the stream, and she says, this is the first time I've gone piggyback riding since I was a kid. And I'm like, that's not a piggyback ride. And right away, they get into arguing about it, which, of course, is another one of those little things about, do rich people actually don't know what piggyback is? They don't know how to dunk donuts, and they don't know how to ride piggyback, and they don't know how to hitchhike, although it turns out maybe they actually do. Well, and one of the the other things that I was reading, and in the scene you just described, the piggyback scene, the, the donut dunking scene, um, another reviewer I read, this was a not a contemporary reviewer, but somebody writing a few years ago said, you can also see elements of like what would become the kind of humor you see in a show like Seinfeld. Where they're getting into the minutia of like, well, that's th there is a proper technique for how you do this, and let me go to great depths to explain this, or a debate about the the nomenclature of piggyback and what does that mean and what does that not mean, and it's like they're having this conversation which is which does not matter, but it's but like that's the best stuff in the movie is is just seeing them you know seeing them do this. Now that's interesting to think about like those are the most winning scenes in the movie. To me, I mean, some of them, like, like where those re that relationship is just, we get to see it in action. Um, because this is a movie that got passed around. People did not want to make, the, not only did were there scenes people didn't want to make, uh, uh, Clarette Colbert didn't want to make this movie. It was a punishment to Clark Gable. Louis, Louis Mayer basically sent him into jail to go do this movie uh, at a different studio. Capra didn't particularly want to make this movie. Colbert, when she finished it, said, I just made the worst movie ever. And and so many people passed on the movie because they said I, the script there's nothing there and it mm -hmm. so it is interesting like like yeah because it's not about it's not about a great plot it's about these performances it's about these characters and I think the magic happens in the in the actual doing of it like I I I don't know that it's a great screenplay or maybe it's only a great screenplay if you've already seen it perform to be like oh yeah I see how this moment is going to be great well you know a couple things one is that there there was a rewrite at some point and uh and some of the people who turned it down said that the film they actually saw was quite different from the initial script they read so i think that's, that's maybe part of it the other part of it too, that's is, true yeah and, and the other part of it is you know they are kind of creating a, a new genre and so uh, you know the movies have only been talkies for about four or five years at this point uh, now, obviously, people are familiar with, you know, dialogue and plays, but still, it, it could also be that this is a different kind of dialogue from what people are, are worth, are, are, are used to dealing with. And, and the other point I want to slip in is that um, Capra and Ris Robert Riskin, who did the screenplay, they, they had a remarkable run in the, in, in the 30s. Um, from 1931 to 38, they collaborated on eight films and got 29 Academy uh, the films were nominated for 29 Academy Awards among them, including eight nominations for Riskin and Capra. So they were, this this was kind of the begin. It wasn't the beginning of the run, but it was towards the beginning of, of a pretty remarkable run. So it is, but 
but Colbert had worked with um, Capra in 27 and had hated it. There would have been a silent film and really didn't want to work with him again. Um, and then, as you pointed out, uh, Gable was under contract at MGM. Paramount was a minor studio at this point. And Louis B. Mayer, never, never, never missing an opportunity to make a buck, uh, was paying our cable 2000 a week uh, and he charged Paramount 2500 so not only did he lend them out, but he made money in the, in, in the <laughs> One of the things that I loved about this story, it was confusing to me in, in a great way when it started, is that you know, in some ways this story starts almost like in media's res, like you walk in and it, the first scene is an argument between these people. And then you realize like, wait, she's already married to somebody? What? Uh, I, it was great. I, I honestly felt like, did we miss a reel of this movie? Why are we, why are we in an argument right away? And then she, and pretty quickly, she flips over a table and jumps out of the boat into the water. And I'm just thinking, what is happening? Again, I didn't remember. I remembered the basic setup of the movie. And I think that's what, what is often the case is a movie like this. You can tell the story pretty quickly. Like, okay, well, here's what, here's what happens. But actually watching it, you realize that is a, that is a great way to start this movie. It starts in action, in argument, and you and it's confusing in a great way. And you just have to think like, well, I'm going to catch up with wherever this is headed. Uh, and I love that opening. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, I think it's a great opening and, uh, and some of Preston Surges' films actually have similar kinds of openings, uh, where you kind of have to, you, you kind of have to flail around a little bit to figure out exactly what is, what is the backstory here? And I think it's really, really engaging. Um, another thing that comes up reading about this movie, and this is maybe a little piece of movie history we can talk about and maybe hear you talk about, is that this is a, by four months, a pre-code movie uh, in terms of uh, the production code, uh, you know, kind of um, moral censorship maybe is what you think about the production code is kind of what that is. So um, can you talk a little bit about how this movie uh, how we can see this movie as, a, I mean, it's a pre-code movie because they really start to enforce that about four months after this comes out, but are there things in this movie that um, maybe would have been different if this movie comes out a year later? Is, does, this, does this push at any edges? Uh, that yeah, a, 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 a little bit. You know, I, um, I don't know if after the code was enforced, maybe Gable wouldn't have taken off his shirt or maybe he wouldn't have been without an undershirt. Um, but I do think that, you know, the, the code had been around for, you know, since 1930, as you're observing, they didn't really start to enforce it till 34. So, but I, but I think the, you know, I, I think the walls of Jericho actually kind of fit the code very nicely. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things I'll say about the code, you know, people sometimes think, you know, the code is terrible because it was, um, self-censorship. Um, but you know what the code really helped to do, and we've talked a little bit about this in past films, is that the code actually ended up creating subtlety and and double entendres. You know, as I said to you when we did bringing up baby, I actually felt as though sometimes I had to explain to the students that this was a very dirty joke because they didn't know what was not being said. So, for example, in this film, you know, you could argue that the hitchhiking scene is not just about a thumb. Uh, that there might be something else going on there. So, so in that sense, I think that the code actually can help stimulate uh, a more subtle, uh, and, and in, some, in that sense, even a dirtier sense of humor, because there's something going on that nobody is saying, but we're all thinking it. 
So mm -hmm. uh, that's why I think actually the code was kind of a stimulus to creativity. Well, it's interesting too because you get you also then get the uh, the uh, Oscar Shapley character who is mm -hmm. who has no subtlety, you know, and so you get to compare like uh, Peter and Shapley, and Shapley is just on his face. Like, what a terrible way to try to pick up a woman on a bus. Like he's like it's. I, I went back and listened to that scene again this morning, and it's so funny because it's like this guy. This guy has no game, right? Like he's just. He's just flat out saying, "Let's have an affair." Let's. It's like you're the type of person who's this is like, yeah, I, you know. And then you compare that with with Peter, who is you know is is very subtle, and and Peter creates this walls of Jericho metaphor that is both this great visual thing, and it allows for a bunch of jokes, and then it allows for this great payoff at the end when you see. Um, when you when he gets the, the when there's the telegram from the father that says like let the walls tumble and all you see is the blanket fall down. Yes. yes. And and it, and it what's interesting is I I was as I was researching this I didn't even realize this is also a romantic comedy where the two characters never kiss. Mm -hmm. We never see them. You right. know it's so so our version of that is seeing that blanket fall and realizing okay now here is. Here is the beginnings of this, and I think it's perfect that they never kiss. You know, the, the I think it's the moment in the hay, right, when he's leaning over her, and uh, and then of course it's the moment when she comes to his bed. But in both cases, they keep it they keep it chaste, and uh, that that you're right, that results in a much greater payoff. Um, thinking of uh, let's go let's go to scenes. This is this movie has such. I just started writing down scenes that I thought were uh, were really funny. We've talked about uh, we've talked about some of these. Uh, the scene where they're in the cabin and the detectives come in and they snap into this improv argument and the fact that they both roll with it, like that they're, that, you know, and that, and that actually makes the, uh, the Ellie character, it makes her so much better because in lots of things it would be like, okay, I'm going to protect you by like, I'm going to create this thing and I'm trying to convince you to go along, but there's not a moment of hesitation and with it's totally unspoken and they have this fantastic, funny argument. And it's this great moment of like, we're going to make this so awkward for these detectives that we're going to make them want to leave. And I just thought I loved, I loved how that made me feel about Ellie and who she was. And, and, and what's really interesting about that is it tells you that their attraction to each other is not simply sexual. That, 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 that really what attracts them to each other are their respective minds. You know, the fact that they can fall into that successful improv comedy, uh, and he picks up on her, her comment about being a plumber's daughter. And it's just, you know, so you, so you know that they're, uh, when people can do that, it means they can really listen to each other. Uh, and, and even though they're, they're in conflict throughout the film, they're also at the same time are, are in many respects really receptive to each other. And so I think that's, to me, that, that whole little drama is actually kind of their relationship in, an, in a nutshell. Um, the way that they are using conflict to actually advance in, intimacy. And that's, this is where I would bring it to why I loved this movie and why bringing up baby was such a struggle for me is I bought this relationship mm -hmm. whole, like, like, and I think it's in part because they didn't need to tell me I'm falling in love with this person. It's mm -hmm. like, you, you just watch them hang out and bicker, but also you're like, you know what they're, and th this actually feels kind of Shakespearean to me a little bit. It's like, it's like, but they are such a great match for each other match, not just in that they're compatible, 
but they're they can spar with each other they can you know they can knock each other like like it's a good matchup to watch them interact and it's like you know those are the those are the things like i think about uh when i have friends who you know back when i had friends who were getting married like part of what i wanted to see is like how do you joke together and how do you um how do you playfully argue together and it's like okay if you can do that you're probably going to make it like you know like like those cuz those are the things that that gets you through the day and so so i feel like you know in bringing up baby i feel like i just never they had to tell me about th- that there was love there cuz i didn't see it in here it's like at the end they tell me but it's like you didn't need to tell me i like it's on the screen and that way. and so so for me this this worked really well Sam, so thanks for ruining bringing up baby for me. Um, <laughs> now, seriously, I think you have a really good point. Um, in, in that, in bringing up baby, David is continually defeated by her. I mean, she, 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 in a sense, always has the upper hand. Um, and and you know, I know when we talked about that film, you know, I made an argument for how his realization that he actually loved her works for me. It still does, and yet at the same time, I see exactly how one could argue that what's happening and happened one night is both more plausible and even to a certain degree more satisfying because you can actually see that they are well-matched for each other in a truly Benedict and Beatrice way, whereas I don't think that's true in in Bringing Up Baby. Bringing Up Baby is more uh, (laughs) taming of the shrew in which Catherine Hepburn wins the shrew wins and uh and uh, the guy is defeated all right we don't have to talk about bringing up baby anymore because I, I don't uh, that's not really the conversation that i intend to have i want to talk about my favorite my favorite laugh in this movie and it's a it's a series of laughs um and it's funny because it grows out of the hitchhiking scene hitchhiking scene is great it's classic it's iconic it's it's the scene you see when people talk about this movie yeah. But the best part is, as funny as that whole scene is, it is followed by, to me, my favorite character in the whole movie, which is the guy who picks them up and just gets <laughs> up singing. It is, that is, I watched this with my wife and my daughter, and we were rolling, <laughs> laughing out loud, because he doesn't do it once. He, he makes up three songs, yes. you know, and they're even, like, hinting at him to, like, please stop. And, and it's like, he's not buying it. And then to find out that that guy's a villain, too. It's like it's like like there are there are like four layers of why all of that is so funny. Um, yeah, I mean that that goes. I don't. I, I love comedies, and I, but I'm not somebody who who's like who laughs out loud a lot because I'm I'm pretty in my head. But I was laughing out loud at that guy, and I just thought this is this movie's for me. I loved him. What, what, what's interesting, Sam, is how harmless the villains are. You know, there's 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 kind of three villains, right? There's the guy that steals Ellie's suitcase, um, and that's good because that gets her and Peter together. And then there's Shapley, who basically is a comic. He's just a comic villain, and by the way, potentially the inspiration for Bugs Bunny, according to Fritz Freeling. Um, and then and then there's the guy in the car, and he turns out to be uh, wonderful because that's how they get a car. Uh, and that's what I was trying to remember when I was thinking back in the movie. I couldn't. I thought they had a vehicle at one point, but I couldn't remember how they got it. So I think that, so it's, Capra, he, he, he doesn't really present them with, um, uh, with, with really scary villains. They're just kind of like little bumps in the road that they then get to overcome. Right, and even the father's not a scary villain because the, the father, that could be a villain character and it turns out he actually just really loves his daughter and like, he's probably right that this King Wesley guy, it's not great for her. 
Well, you know, the, the, the most reprehensible thing that the father does at the beginning is he's, when he slaps her. And you can see his immediate regret. Uh, and so you know the guy's heart is in the right place. Yeah, King, King Wesley, you know, one of, the, one of the critics I read suggested that there's a kind of a American-British conflict going on there. He's clearly, he's clearly, I mean, just his name, right? King, King Wesley. And he's clearly, you know, one of those kind of uh, gold-digging bounders. Uh, and, you know, Peter sees right through him. And so you know that he's, that he's no good. But this is, that's a classic rom-com trope, right? You have, uh, there's a love triangle, uh, uh, rom uh, rom screwballs sometimes sometimes been called comedies of remarriage. You know, so you often have one character who is either with somebody already or plans to be with somebody, and then the other character comes along and breaks up that relationship. That is, that really I think is the trope that's kind of created by uh, by it happened one night. Although again, it's got its roots in Shakespeare as well. Um, I have to say one other thing about the uh, the the guy who steals. Well, the, 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 well, a couple things about the the stealing of, of the the suitcase. The, the guy who picks him up in the car. I also love that we see Gable leave, but we don't see the scene where he somehow can find this guy and confronts him. Um, I, I like that he just pulls up in the car because it allows us to not deal with the fact that <laughs> yes. that somehow stealing the suitcase justifies him stealing a car, like. But we don't have to worry about that. It's like, you know, like that, that's, that's not, I don't want to see that scene necessarily. I just like that he pulls up and is like, well, here we are. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you see him running out after the car and it's like, you can't possibly catch it. So it's just, it's just, uh, it's the miracle of editing, right? Next thing right. you know, he is. <laughs> so the other, the other thing about the, the character who plays, uh, or excuse me, the, the character who picks them up and steals their suitcase um, he is played by an actor named, uh, let me find out on the list, Alan that's Hale. I think. What's that? It's Alan Hale. Right? Yeah, it's Alan Hale. Now, uh, this this is kind of crazy to me. Alan Hale, do you know who his son is? Yeah, isn't he, um, well, it's obviously it's Alan Hale Jr. Um, was he the guy in Mr. Ed? No, he's the skipper on Gilligan's Island. Oh, skipper on Gilligan's Island. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> now, the... Now that that's that's amusing to me, but this is just a weird like uh, intersection in life. Um, I will I will just reveal something about myself. I go to sleep at night. I um and what I will often do is turn on. I'll go to Netflix or go to Amazon Prime, and I'll turn on just a random stand up comedy special. I'll listen to it as I fall asleep. Like I I, I find listening to somebody talk really mm -hmm. that relaxes me even to fall asleep. Last night at random, I listened to a, a stand up comedy. Uh, hour by a woman named Samantha Hale, who oh. at the beginning of the special explains, "Oh, my grandfather was the skipper on Gilligan's Island," and she oh. says, "And my my great grandfather was, you know, in old Errol Flynn movies and these things." And then this morning, I was like, "I wonder who played that guy," and I looked it up and I said, "It said wow. Alan Hale Senior," and I was and I realized <laughs> how weird is that that the <laughs> night before we do this recording, I found this intersection that way. So. Oh man, those those kind of serendipities are great. That, that, I love that, Sam. That's a great story. Um, this is a movie that is uh, ends up being wildly successful, and it seemed like from the stories that I that I read about this that uh, it was kind of moderately successful, and then became very successful as it as it sort of expanded out. And this is kind of a it gets pointed to as a depression era story in that way that it's like. 
you know, as, as it sort of reached more people, it got more and more, uh, mm. more and more popular. And then this movie, as we talked about last week is famous for sweeping the five, uh, the five major Oscars, best picture, best director, best screenplay, best actor and best actress. Um, and as I look at it, I think deserving of all of them. I think mm. it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, are you surprised that in 1934 this movie sort of takes every prize? Well, I mean, yeah, it, it's always surprising when every movie takes every prize. Um, to be frank, since I don't know enough about the quality of the competition, I didn't take time to research that. I can't really say as far as that's concerned, Sam. But in terms of its popularity as a movie dealing with the depression, you know, because the screwball comedies emerged as kind of escapist movies in response to the depression. I think this movie does the kind of, a, for reasons we talked about earlier, I think it does a right on, it's, it's right on in terms of, I think, hitting a sweet spot with, an, with a broad audience, especially the audience that's kind of suffering from the effect of the, uh, of the depression. Capra said something about his own filmmaking when he got an honorary award, which I think fits this film perfectly. He says the, the, he said, the art of Frank Capra is very, very simple. It's the love of people. And, mm. and add two simple ideas to this love of people, the freedom of each individual and the equal importance of each individual. And you have the principle on which I based all my films. And I think that there's a heart to this film that I don't get in a lot of other screwballs. I feel like sometimes, you know, sometimes with a lot of screwball comedies, you're kind of standing apart from the characters you're laughing at. It's like Seinfeld. Seinfeld is a show without a heart. Um, it's a funny show. It's a clever show, but there's no heart. I don't love those characters in, in Seinfeld. In fact, I don't think you're supposed to. Whereas I think it's possible to love these two characters uh, in a way that I don't find happening in a lot of other screwballs. Well, and what's amazing is is you end up loving Ellie, even though, especially thinking about the Depression era, like you maybe shouldn't shouldn't admit, like, or she's not set up initially to be a character. Like she is this wealthy heiress who doesn't know anything about the world, and it's like, and very often that's a that that's a character that um, you need to see get knocked down quite a bit in order mm -hmm. to to like them. And I mean, she does, but but she also is a lot pluckier, you know, and like. And also, like, and again, that's where we get into the like Gable and her match each other quite a bit, and and you know, and there's this kind of playful competition between them. Um, I need to say, in terms of you know, we said at the beginning of this, I didn't go into this as a big Clark Gable fan. I didn't quite get it, and then I watched this, and I was like, oh, this is why people love Clark Gable, kind of in the way people love George Clooney. It just reminded me of like a George Clooney kind of character. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could imagine Clooney stepping into a role like this and and pulling it off. Um, mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so so that was definitely like 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 a comp that I thought. Okay, last question that I have. Um, uh, after, after watching this movie, I was thinking a lot about the title. It happened one night, which makes it sound like this should be a movie that takes place over the course of one night, <laughs> but it doesn't. It. Um, so I have thoughts on this title, but I'm curious your thoughts on, on what is the, what is the meaning of the title? It happened one night. That's a really good question, Sam, as I pose that for myself as well. Um, because obviously there's, there's more than one night. A lot happens at night. I, okay. I think, I think it happened one night as the walls of Jericho coming down. I think, I think, I think it happened one night is what happens after the movie ends, uh, which we don't get to see, which could be another, uh, co-division. But to me, that's, that's what happened. It happened one night. That, that's. That's one way. That's one way to think about it because I can't. 
I can't pinpoint one night when they fall in love. So I think it happened one night is the wedding night. I love that answer. I'm going to give a different answer, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which is we had a conversation about the title of another film uh, a long time ago, and that is the movie Once. Yes. And I argued that what I love about the, the about that is that to me it is sort of like this is the opening the the opening line to me telling you this story, or maybe to Peter telling the story, or maybe to Ellie telling the story. Well, it happened one night, and uh-huh. then the story plays out, right? Uh, yeah. That was because because there like, I agree with you. There is no moment where I'm where it's like it's not the second night that it happens. It's not the, you know, but but. But it, it is it is it's sort of like a generic title, you know. Yeah. Like it's like starting a story. It was a dark and stormy night, and it was yeah. just like it's like. But it also, what's great about it is I don't question it. I only question it because I thought a lot about this movie. Um, but you know, and I and as I was reading other things and listening to other things about this, I saw nobody bring up the title. So mm. apparently, apparently, it, it doesn't like, like it, it doesn't it doesn't create an issue for people. But I do found it I do find that a, a, a very interesting title. But I think it works at the same time, and I like either either answer we gave. I think I'm happy with. And, and you, know, you know, it's funny along those lines. I can't think of a better title. You know, for example, you know, okay, let you know, let's let let's come up with a different title for this film that somehow you can you somehow suggest the plot. And I think I, I can't think of something that would. You know that you know something. I I off the top of my head, something stupid like the heiress and the newspaper man, something like that. But that's that doesn't have any mm-hmm. any z- uh, any zing to it at all. So I think you're right. I think it's a great title. Well, and it it actually it. I, I wonder if it helps make this kind of an all timer movie too. Because let's mm-hmm. let's take the, t- the the title you just threw out there. Like to me, well, that sounds like a generic like 30s yep. screwball comedy. But it happened one night. Sounds like this is like a more meaningful movie somehow. Well, it also draws you in. What happened one night? Right. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can go into the film waiting for something amazing to happen one night, and then I don't think you'd be disappointed, but it would draw you in. Absolutely. Do you have other things you want to talk about with this? I just have to say that, um, you know, one of, one of the ways to me in which the film is kind of proto-screwball is it, it doesn't have a lot of a really sharp dialogue that you get, say, from a Preston Sturgis. But it's got some great, it does have some great dialogue. But my favorite moment of dialogue in the film, well, my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in the film, which we haven't talked at all about, is, is when uh, Peter goes to her father to get reimbursed. And first of all, I just love that scene because, you know, he's coming from a completely different direction than, than the father is, and that's how he wins him over. But I love, I love the end of the scene when her father says, uh, do you mind if I ask you a question, frankly? Do you love my daughter? Oh, any guy that fall in love with your daughter, I have his head examined. That's an evasion. And then Peter says some more bad stuff. He says, do you love her? And Peter says, a normal human being couldn't live under the same roof with her without going nutty. She's my idea of nothing. And Andrew says, I asked you a simple question. Do you love her? Yes. But don't hold that against me. I'm a little screwy myself. I think that's the best line in the film. I, yeah. To me, to me that is, that's a Preston Sturgis line. That that's the kind of line that you would have gotten from one of one of his comedies. I'm so glad you brought that up because because you're absolutely right. Like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Loved it. Loved it. <laughs> I also love the introduction of. Um, we we talked about the introduction of Ellie. I love the introduction of Peter, where you have all these people like surrounding this telephone booth, and he's in there, and you realize, well, they don't get to hear his conversation. 
and you realize he's getting fired, but he walks out of there. And I mean, and it's it's such it tells you so much about both those introductions tell you so much about those characters in a really quick, uh, mm-hmm. a really quick moment. Um, and it you know, and that they're both they're both when they meet, they both have these facades that they've put up that aren't entirely accurate to their situation. Um, and I, I really love that. And you never get the backstory. You 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 never you never know what he did that was worth being fired. So I kind of like that actually. I yeah. like that dangling. I like the dangling, the dangling end. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. I, I I this was one that I wasn't sure. I was like, yeah, I've seen this. Didn't land for me. I was a little nervous. And again, I think this movie is fantastic. I really, really, really liked this movie. Uh, anything else you want to talk about before we move to next? Oh, week? just just a, just a bit of trivia uh, that uh, Colbert. Cody Colbert was uh, in three films in 1934, all of which were nominated for Best Picture. Really? Uh, it happened one night, Cleopatra and Imitation of Life. They were all up for Best Picture, and she was in all of them. So anyway. Wow. I don't, I don't think any actress or actors have ever, ever done that. No, that's, uh, that's, that's actually a great piece of trivia. That's yeah, really good. It's like the John Cazale trivia of like every movie he was in was nominated for best picture because he was only in like five movies. Yeah. So what do you have for us for next week? Well, you know, I I said that watching this film was one direction out of one flew over the cougar's nest. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go in a direction that both plays off cougar's nest and plays off this film. Um, And it's taking us back to Billy Wilder. I can't get away from Billy Wilder. Um, and it's 1950, uh, it was either two or three, Ace in the Hole. Uh, and here's the connection to Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, when I was thinking about the fact that Kirk Douglas wanted to play R.P. McMurphy and had played him on, on Broadway, um, I tried to think of, well, what Kirk Douglas performance might suggest that he could be R.P. McMurphy? Uh, and I thought of Ace in the Hole. Um, it's a stretch. But then, but then I was reconfirmed in that choice by thinking, the other thing that's going on in Ace in the Hole is he is a disgraced newspaper man who's been fired and is trying to get a story to get back into the into the into his boss's good graces. So there's a connection to it happened one night. So that's that's what we're gonna do. Oh, fantastic! I'm so excited. I don't think I've heard of this movie. So this is that's always the best. Yeah, no, it, it, it was a wilder film that people had kind of forgotten about. And then the, a great Criterion disc came out a couple of years ago, and it kind of got rediscovered. At least I rediscovered it. Uh, and I even, uh, I, I even showed it to a group of journalism students and had a conversation about it a couple of years ago. Oh, fantastic. Well, I cannot wait. Barrett, uh, as always, thank you so much for, uh, for recommending this film, for having this conversation. I would say if, uh, if you just... If you listen to this and haven't seen this movie, this movie is so delightful to watch. It is it's a movie from 87 years ago, but man, is it funny. It's fun. It flies along. It doesn't drag. Um, yeah, I, like this, you just feel like you're in good hands watching this movie. You know, and this, and maybe that speaks to it sweeping the awards too, is like the performances are fantastic. The direction is great. The story is great. It, it looks great. And it, it just, it clips along without, 
without feeling like it's getting out ahead of you or like you're getting lost in it. Um, and it is, it's also like a great uh, road movie, you know, there, there, there's lots of like genres you could point to with this. It's a road movie. It's a, it's a buddy movie in a kind of way that then becomes this, this romantic movie. I love it. I just really, really uh, found it fantastic. So that is all the time we have for this week, but we will be back next week to talk about Ace in the Hole in the video store. Mm-hmm.